Hi, I'm Karina Bemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right. Daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, stay safe. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Scary Mysteries, Twisted News, Lambeth Slavery Case, and Ursula Herman Abduction. Everything from mind-blowing cases of brainwashing to cold-blooded child abductions. Every week, Twisted News dives into a pair of unique and chilling cases currently happening in our world. For this week, we'll explore the disturbing kidnapping cases of a young girl in Germany and a unique story of human trafficking that occurred in London. Get ready for Scary Mysteries, Twisted News. Number 1. Ursula Herman In 1981, a 10-year-old girl was riding her bike as she headed back home after a visit at her cousin's house. She never arrived home, though, and this was the start of what is considered to be one of the most notorious and controversial criminal cases to ever happen in post-World War II Germany. September 15, 1981 was the first day of the school year in what was then the Federal Republic of Germany. Ursula Hermann was at her cousin's house and as night began to set in, the girl's mother called her sister, telling her that she needed to send her daughter back home. The bike ride between the two houses would normally take around 10 minutes to complete, But 30 minutes had passed, and Ursula had still not arrived home. Her mother called again, and the aunt said that her niece had already left 20 minutes ago, and as if on cue, both of them knew immediately that something was terribly wrong. Ursula's father and uncle searched the forest between the road of Etching and Skondorf. The two men met along the path and began calling out Ursula's name through the thick trees. An hour later, the entire neighborhood, including the local police and firemen, joined the search for the girl. 
Even with their flashlights, it proved difficult to see past the thick woods. And it didn't help that it was raining that night, which made it harder to tread on the wet grounds, as well as hear anyone as sound wouldn't travel as far. Going deeper and deeper into the forest, they finally came across Ursula's little red bike. But unfortunately, the girl was nowhere to be found. At first light of the next day, the search for the ten-year-old intensified. Dozens more officers joined in the effort. Helicopters were hovering above. Rescue boats were scanning the nearby lake, while divers were searching underwater. Meanwhile, the local radio station was blasting the news of the missing girl, described to be four feet seven inches tall, with short blonde hair, and wearing a gray woolen cardigan. One could only imagine the anxiety that the family was going through those days during the search. Then, two days after, the Herman household began receiving cryptic calls. No one spoke from the other end. What they heard was only a familiar radio jingle. And this continued on until the third day, when the family received a ransom note demanding two million marks for the release of the girl. Then another creepy call came in, and Ursula's mother confirmed to the silent listener that they'd give up the money. On Monday, September 21st, they received further instructions regarding the drop-off. It indicated that the money should be only in 100 Deutschmark bill denominations and packed in a suitcase. Contrary to what the perpetrator may have believed, the Hermans were not exactly considered a wealthy family. It was only with the help of a neighbor and the local government that the amount was actually raised. They waited for more instructions, the time and place for the drop-off, but that never came. After almost three weeks had passed, authorities opted to search the forest once again. This time, they had more manpower and more sniffer dogs to do the grid search. Then, four days into that search, a chilling discovery was made. They found Ursula's lifeless body hidden inside a box that was buried in the woods. It was a fairly large box, too big to be carried by one person, and it was painted green with sliding bolt locks on the outside. Inside it, they found food, lights, reading material, a radio, a toilet bucket, and the lifeless girl. The box had ventilation, but the pipes weren't enough to allow proper airflow. The autopsy determined that Ursula died of suffocation within hours of being placed inside that box. While many people were questioned, no one stood out as a suspect, and so with no leads to work on, the case eventually went cold. For almost 30 years, no one was indicted for the horrific crime. The victim's family remained hopeful that they could get justice for their little girl, but as the 30-year statute of limitations was approaching in 2007, the police decided to look again on someone who never sat right with the investigators. In the initial investigation, they identified Warner Mazurik, a local mechanic and a neighbor of the Hermans as a primary suspect. He was among those who were questioned during the initial stage of the investigation, but had a solid alibi that got him off the hook. Upon looking at him again, they found out that the man had the skills and the motivation to commit the crime. At the time, he had fallen into great debt, and this was enough for police to place him under surveillance. 
Meanwhile, another breakthrough came when an old tape recorder was found in the suspect's home. A sound technician studied the machine and listened to the recordings of phone calls made to Ursula's family days after her disappearance. The investigation concluded that the tape recorder had been used to play back that radio jingle. And so, after a grueling 13-month trial in Augsburg, a city in Bavaria, Werner Mazurek, who was then 59 years old, was sentenced to life in prison on March 25, 2010. His wife, who was suspected of abetting her husband, was acquitted. Number 2. Lambeth Slavery Case Since the early 19th century, and even up to now, there have been plenty of reports revealing bizarre cases where thought manipulation was involved. Brainwashing and mind control are very real things, and the following tragic story could be among one of the most bizarre examples of it that we've ever seen. It began with Aravindan Balakrishnan, who was born in India and later on migrated to Singapore. When he was still studying at the University of Singapore around the 1960s, Balakrishnan showed incredible interest in activism. The political climate at the time in the country, however, restricted such activities, and so, despite his hate for the United Kingdom, which he considered as fascist due to its oppressive history, the son of a former soldier emigrated to London in 1963. A recipient of the British Council Scholarship, he attended the London School of Economics, where he also met his future wife, Shanda Patini. It was at this school that Balakrishnan was able to fully exert his political interest, particularly in communism. Aside from giving countless lectures and speeches in public gatherings, he also staged several school-wide protests. Outside of school, the intelligent young man never missed a single London demonstration during which he would wave flags and banners depicting the Chinese Communist Revolutionary Leader Mao Zedong. Over time, the charismatic man from Singapore was able to build up a considerably large following for himself. He became known to his followers as Comrade Bala, and he created the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought, with its headquarters located in Brixton, London. They sought to establish revolutionary base areas targeting working-class communities in South London, but in 1978, London police raided the Maoist Party headquarters under the suspicion of drug trafficking. At least nine members, including Comrade Bala, were apprehended for assaulting police officers, and after that, the group's leader decided to take the Workers' Institute underground. Out of all the people who once believed in his cause, there were only four women who remained by Comrade Bala's side. Losing sight of their true cause, the organization basically disintegrated and eventually became a commune. Things began to take a wild turn as Bala convinced his people to sever all their ties to the outside world, including communication with their own families. As they moved around, he also began making outrageous claims, such as his apparent control of the weather, the sun, moon, wind, and fire. He further claimed to have the ability to cause natural disasters, overthrow governments, and even kill people with his mind. 
To amplify these powers, he built a machine called Jackie, which is an acronym for Jehovah, Allah, Christ, Krishna, and immortal Iswaran. Through this equipment, he claimed that he could also monitor and control the minds of people. With no ties from the outside world, Balakrishnan was able to take full control of everyone's lives in his little Maoist sect. The women were subjected to servitude, where they were made to work with no compensation of any form whatsoever. To make things worse, two of his female members were often sexually assaulted and made to have sexual relations with him. When not in the mood for pleasure, Bala would also physically abuse his captives by beating them while making the others watch. And this wasn't a short stint. This nightmarish living situation lasted for 30 long years. On November 21, 2013, the Metropolitan Police Human Trafficking Unit raided a condominium unit in Lambeth, South London after they received a tip regarding three women who were held captive by a former Communist Party leader. This would officially mark the end of the Workers' Institute. Balakrishnan and his wife Chandra, who was with him all along, were arrested for suspicion of enslavement and domestic abuse. The three rescued women, who the media called the Lambeth Slaves, were 69-year-old Ashaya Wahab, 57-year-old Josephine Hervel, and 30-year-old Katie Morgan Davies. Davies is Comrade Bala's biological daughter. She was born and brought up within the confines of the commune, and it was her who tipped the authorities about their captivity. Her mother, Sion Davies, was believed to have been killed when she tried to run away. Ultimately, Balakrishnam was convicted of child cruelty, false imprisonment, and assault by the Southwark Crown Court on January 29, 2016, and given a 23-year prison sentence. His wife, on the other hand, was released uncharged in 2014. The three rescued women are now living freely in the UK. So there were two of the most disturbing and bone-chilling stories around. The world can be a crazy place, and Twisted News is sure to show you why. If you guys enjoyed watching this video, then please subscribe and hit the notification bell, because every week we have multiple videos coming out for you to check out. And if you're into podcasts, check out our new one called Every Town, because every town has a dark side. Thank you guys for watching, and I'll see you soon.